the Rural Health Voice discusses the opioid crisis and foster care. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Today, our guest is Dr. Wendy Welch, author of Fall or Fly, the Strangely Hopeful Story of Foster Care in Appalachia. Greetings, Wendy. Hello. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this book. (laughs) I was coerced. Um, There is a pastor in our area who is a beloved figure, both in the pastoral world and also in the world of foster care, because he heads a therapeutic foster agency. He had hosted some cancer circles I had done as a storyteller, which is basically taking people who have survived cancer or who are battling cancer or loved ones whose family had been lost to cancer and taking them to churches and letting them tell their story to people at the churches. And the the hope for the outcome of this was there would be an uptick in people getting screened early for cancer prevention. This was pretty effective, and this pastor was one of those who opened their churches for the storytellers to come and talk to their congregations. He called me up later, and he said, Could you do for foster kids what you did for cancer victims? Uh, probably not, because the laws surrounding foster care are, are much more private. If someone wants to tell their own cancer journey story, they can. But you really can't tell another child's foster journey, and foster parents really need privacy. So what we hit on instead was we would do a blog. We would invite people who wanted to tell their story to work with me as an editor, and we would shape their stories, and then we would put them up on a blog. And we did four or five of those and enjoyed the run on it. I really, really enjoy helping other people tell their stories, particularly stories that are about healthcare and social justice. So we put four or five stories up and the pastor said, we really ought to do a book of these. And I said, you know, it's so hard to get a book organized. It's, there's not going to be distribution. We, we don't have the resources for that. Let's just keep up with the blog. But let's launch the blog in an official way now that we're kind of on a run with these stories. So near where I live, the Appalachian Studies Association was holding its annual conference that year. It just happened to be. So we said, let's have an event at the Appalachian Studies Association where we're part of a panel discussion, and then we launch the blog as an official act. That'll give everybody some closure and a sense of of, of importance of what they've done because they'd really put some good community voices out there. Well, when you go to the Appalachian Studies Association, they put out a big list of what's coming. It's basically a a small book in its own right of all of the panels that are going to be there. And I got an email from a woman named Jillian Berkowitz, and she said, I note with interest that you are conducting a panel of stories of people who are adopting or fostering children. Do you have a book associated with the project? I said, no, I don't. She said, well, would you like there to be a book associated with the project? And that's how we got the editor at Ohio University Press, and that's how my pastor got his book. And I called him up and said I thought it was cheating for him to pray to get a book deal like that. But it just literally came to us. 
So with that, what do people need to know about the connection between the opioid crisis and foster care? The opioid crisis is driving foster care almost 100% at this point. When I started working with the pastor, um, we can call him Dale. That's the name we gave him in the book. When I started working with Dale, there were a few kids who were actually orphaned. The rest of the kids had living parents who were either incarcerated or incapacitated because of opioids. By the time I had finished the research a year later, 96% of the kids in the research area I was working in were there because of opioids. They had living parents, but they couldn't take care of them. So with that, are we, is foster care running out of capacity because of the crisis? Yes. Uh, Foster care was low in capacity to, to begin with, before opioids began to be the driving force, back when it was neglect or abuse or um, harm in some capacity for the kids, there were already fewer foster families than there were children that needed them. Right now, one of the things that I did when I started working on Fall or Fly was get permission to talk to social workers without any repercussions to the social workers and with definite, complete anonymity for them. And once they knew they could tell any story they wanted without repercussions coming back on them, they blew like volcanoes. They had so much to say. And one of the things they said is really unpalatable to the public because I think the public thinks this is what social workers are supposed to do. They're supposed to find the foster parents. What the social workers said to me was that they had redefined, if you like, they never used the word redefined. They simply said, now what we look for in a foster parent is pretty straightforward. Is the bed the child's own? Is the child going to eat enough food not to be hungry on any given day? Is the child going to attend school as required by law? That is an acceptable foster home. What they used to look for, what they still long for, what they hope for, what they try to build is emotional engagement with the child. A home where people say, hello, dear, how was your day at school? Do you like eggs? Oh, no, wait, you don't like onions. I won't put onions in the soup tonight. These kinds of things that show the general compassion and casual care and affection of a good home, those are now bonuses as opposed to the thing they're trying. They, they, they will take homes lower than that standard now. If the bed is the child's own, if the child is eating, if the child is warm in winter and attending school, they'll take it. And the first time that came out in, in printing, when I was writing the book and we sent it out to some readers uh, through Ohio University Press, they sent it to some social workers who said, you can't say this. This is not fair. It's not okay. It's not right. And my editor asked one question. She said, is it true? I said, yeah, yeah, it's true. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's hard to process that children are essentially, you know, taking bare minimum standards because directly because of the opiate crisis in your estimation. Yeah. There were always homes that were not with their hearts in the right place. We can say there are, 
I think in the American public's mind, there are a lot of really bad foster homes out there. And true, there are bad foster homes out there, but they take up all the bandwidth, if you like. There are about as many truly awful foster homes as there are truly magnificent foster homes. What you tend to get is a big lump in the middle with a dividing line through it. And on one side are the people who emotionally invest in the kids. And on the other side are the people who do not emotionally engage or invest in the kids. If you can find people who will emotionally engage, that is your, your gold standard. That's what you're looking for. But if you can't, and you know the kids will be physically safe, you'll still take it. And that's, that's the thing I think Americans find very unpalatable. Like, it's not supposed to be that way. Well, no, it's not. But who's going to fix it? And why is it that way? And then we get into the question of the upstream approach where Everyone goes rushing off to, to figure out what they can do about the opioid crisis. That's great. But you still got these kids sitting here right now. There are still 500 kids in the service area that I invest, that I researched. You still have 500 kids who need someplace safe to be. Hmm. So the subtitle of your book is The Strangely Hopeful Story of Foster Care in Appalachia. Why strangely hopeful? Because the hope didn't come where I expected it to come from. For all that it's a, a bleak and scary and deepening dark well that we're falling into, there are people out there killing themselves to make life better for kids. There are foster parents who realize how difficult the system can be and they adopt their kids and get out and they make life better for that subset of kids. Um, I talked to one uh, foster parent who, who called it exactly that. She said, we went in intending to foster long-term. We realized that the system was full of challenges and we realized that to foster long-term meant to continue some things that we thought were actually cruel on behalf of the children, um, some mandated uh, parental interactions and some mandated uh, rulings of, of how the kids spent their time. And they said, no, but we're going to adopt these kids. And they adopted seven children in all. They adopted two sets, one set of three and one set of four siblings. And they also kept siblings together, which can be a little tricky inside the system. Now, when I say, I'm afraid people might understand, misunderstand something I just said. Um, it is not cruel for foster parents to go and see their parents. What is cruel is for court-mandated attempts at reunification when the parent lapses and the child is still forced to see the parent when the parent is incapacitated. When you go to see your mom and your mom passes out in front of you, or you go to see your mom and she can't interact with you because she's not mentally in the room with you. Those things were cruel. And that's what the foster parent in, that I'm thinking of from my interviews said. She said, I'm, I am watching this mother blow every chance that has been given to her. And I understand that when my kids turn 18, they'll go back and look for this mom. I get that. But the difference between 8 and 18 in seeing their mom like this and understanding and being able to process what they're seeing, she said, that's significant. I can teach this child to be safe at 18 when he meets his mom again. At 8... I just need to protect him. 
So I'm guessing foster care is one of those things where it's much easier to complain about it than do something about it and point fingers. <laughs> there, there were very few foster parents who actually wanted to talk to me. The social workers wanted to talk. Some of the kids who had aged out wanted to talk. And there were a few adoptive parents who had been foster parents who wanted to talk. But the people who were actively fostering, there were just a handful of them, I think. There may have been nine or fewer that I, that I talked to. And the reason for that is that foster parents can't be normal. They can be saints or they can be sinners in the public's mind, but they can't just be a person who eats cornflakes and goes to church. They're, they're not allowed to be just your average person. And that in itself is interesting. But when you start talking about foster parents and the decisions they make, Everybody feels qualified to weigh in on that. I have a friend who wrote a book the same time as mine. Uh, Deborah Gold is the name she writes under, and she wrote a book called Counting Down because she wasn't allowed to adopt the child that she received when he was basically, he was under two. She wasn't allowed to adopt him, but she worked very hard to be in his life for all of his life and basically gained permanent custody of him and uh, interaction with his older brother and older sister while maintaining a relationship with the family. And when she was careful what she did and careful what she said because of wanting to maintain that relationship with the family so that this child would not be yanked from her because the family grew angry at her and, and it, there are many, many nuances and subtleties to that. But people would say to her, but you must report this. You're a mandated reporter, but you must report this. Surely it's in the best interest of the child. And she has this lovely line in her book where she says, it's amazing how well people can become lawyers from watching television. <laughs> I'm sure many lawyers would agree with that. Yeah. So in 2016... 92,000 children were removed from their homes nationwide because a parent had a problem with drug abuse. How is this process, or is this process, different in Appalachia? The removal of children because of drug abuse is not different. Where they go may be different. Appalachia has a strong connection to kin care. It's called something different in every state. Now, because of the way Appalachia is structured, I researched across three states. Um, you can think of sort of southeastern Kentucky, northwestern North Carolina, southwestern Virginia, and northeastern Tennessee, all as kind of one state in the coal fields. And in Virginia, it's called kin care. I don't think it's called that in Kentucky. It's called something else. What this basically is, is a system where the children will go with a relative. It is actually a good idea, except that it's not founded on a good idea. It's founded on the concept that this was cheaper for the government. Go with grandma. Grandma will take care of you for a couple of weeks until we see what we can do about mom. And if mom is truly incapacitated, then we could see about maybe grandma keeping you a little longer. Now the problem is at a certain point, grandma has to get a foster care license, which is tough on grandma. And in order for her to get funding, let, let me be more clear, in order for grandma to get funding from the state to keep her grandchildren, 
she has to get a foster care license. That's tough on grandma. But if she doesn't get a foster care license and she just keeps the kids with her, well, she's the grandmother, so she's allowed to. So you, you kind of see how the game is played there. It can be very difficult for relatives in Appalachia, in particular, in rural areas where um, economies are downturned and jobs are hard to come by. It can be very, very difficult for relatives to have enough money to keep up with their sister or daughter's children without assistance from the state. But assistance from the state comes at the price of having the state directly involved, coming to your house, measuring crib slats, talking to you about your husband. It's, uh, it's an invasive process. So is the foster care licensing process the same for both relatives and non-relatives? Do the relatives have to meet all of those same standards? I think they do. I had never got a straight answer to that question. And my guess is that at certain points, some things might be allowed to, uh, things that would not be considered completely unsafe might, might not be involved. But uh, having the fire extinguisher in your house, having the crib slats measured, having the width of your windows measured, water quality. Again, back to my friend Deborah, she almost wasn't allowed to foster because she lived in an area where old houses had lead pipes. And I would also think that, you know, culturally, the, the barrier between relatives, you know, raising other family members, um, I can see some of the attitude of, you know, you're not going to tell me what to do with my own grandkid. There is that. And it, there are issues with prescribed behavior for foster parents. The, the classes are an excellent idea. Don't, don't get the wrong idea. The classes weed out people who are in it for the money or for worse reasons. They're, they're very important. Uh, since their instigation, uh, instances of actual abuse of foster kids and of harm to foster kids have gone down. The problem is when they're used as, oh, for lack of a better word, a weapon to deter relatives from licensing because it's just so invasive to do that. But they need the money. Now, social workers will step in and help them, and social workers will walk them through the process. The process of licensing is not intended to knock people out of being a foster home. It's intended to help them. But it takes time and it takes money. If you have to redo the windows in your house, it's going to cost you. And I assume you don't get any of the funds for foster care until you've gone through the licensing process. Right. Okay. Now, public health officials are calling for addiction to be treated as a disease. If parents who abuse drugs are considered sick instead of being criminals, does that change how people think about putting kids into foster care as well? I don't think so. The two reasons I met for children being in kin care were cancer and opioids. And there was no difference in the reaction of the family surrounding the kin care family to the fact that the child was not biologically theirs. Grandparents are sort of acceptable. You know, you understand that. But if a child was in foster care with an aunt or an uncle or, uh, or just in foster care generally, the reason they were there really didn't seem to be as important as the ability to judge the parent for sending them. Didn't matter if mama was dying or addicted. It was the same thing. How could you do that to your child? 
I really found that odd. There's a, a massive, massive judgment against women who put their kids into someone else's hands. doesn't matter for what the reason. As an example, there's a, a girl in my book. I, I call her Kim. Um, she, she was sold. Uh, her mother had two girls. Uh, uh, they were, one was in preschool and one was in second grade. And she was uh, becoming close to a man who didn't want to raise someone else's children. So he said before he would move in with her, she would have to send her kids away. Well, his sister couldn't have children. And she gave the mother $5,000 and a mobile home in return for taking the baby on. And because the mother didn't have time or access to the biological father, the boyfriend who didn't want kids signed that he was the dad, and, and they signed the kid over to her aunt by marriage, the sister of the man who wouldn't allow the children to stay in the home. I hope everybody can follow that. I know it's convoluted. That kind of thing, kind of going back to your original question about kin care, that kind of thing happens, I think, in Appalachia more than it happens in inner cities because it's easier to pull off. You're, you're willing to take a child, somebody forges a signature, somebody pretends to be somebody they're not, and poof, off you go. I'm sure that happens in inner cities as well, but in Appalachia, there's just not that many people watching for that. It's, it's almost acceptable because the child is going into kin care. The child's going to be safe. And this girl was raised beautifully. She is a productive, happy, well-adjusted member of society. But she knows that she was sold for $5,000 in a trailer. Fascinating. And I'm, I'm sure for some people, that's a situation where, you know, she grew up happy and healthy. Maybe the ends justify the means. You know, I don't feel qualified to judge her life. I feel grateful she told me her story. And when I asked her how she felt about how things went, she said, well, I go to therapy because I was sold for $5,000 in a trailer. But when my mom got sick, when she was older and the boyfriend who became her husband had died and the mom had raised that boyfriend's children, <laughs> it, it just gets worse and worse. But when... When that mom became ill, her biological daughter, Kim, invited her to live with her until she died. Now, NPR recently reported on a model program which reaches out to moms with substance abuse disorders and works to build a support system for them so they can work to get clean before the child is born. Do you see that as a viable alternative to foster care? Yes. Uh, the problem is it's more expensive. Providing care for pregnant women in an in-house facility in rural Appalachia is going to be expensive. But it is short-term expense for long-term savings. Those kids staying with mom in the first place, mom becoming a productive member of society who gets a job and supports herself and her child, mom's quality of life the baby's example of mom having a quality of life. Someday when you're 12, I'll tell you about it, what it was like before you were born. There's no price for that. That is the best outcome you could have. The problem is that it's short-term expensive for long-term unmeasurable success. So what can people do in their hometowns to address 
the the foster care situation? They can see if they feel like they could be foster parents. Not everybody can do it. You need to check it out before you start because quitting in the middle is worse than not starting. More likely, there are people in your church or in your community system. Everybody has a, a social group they hang out with. Um, but churches actually tend to be pretty bad at this. I don't know why. Um, look around. There are some people who are raising their grandkids and they don't have any money. You should offer to do something for the grandkids. You should offer to send them to Dollywood. You should offer to buy them food. You should offer to make them dinner one day. You should offer grandma and grandpa a day out while you take the kids to the farm. Something that is supportable and safe. Um, you know, you don't need strangers walking up and saying, hey, let me watch your kids for an afternoon. But in a close-knit community where you know each other from church or you know each other from school or you know each other from the model plane club, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where the, where the relationships will support it. And what can people do in their hometowns to address the opiate crisis? <laughs> um, destroy your meds. When you're done with your prescription, do not save it. Do not put it in a lockbox. Destroy it. Uh, return it. There are lots of police stations and Walmarts now that take drugs back, no questions asked. You don't have to feel weird about taking the rest of your uh, tramadol for your. I, my dog now has a street value because he's on tramadol. I now have controlled substances in my house because of my household pet. Those need to be locked up while they're being distributed. And when the prescription is over, Get those things out of your house because the number one way kids become addicted is they find something in the house or they go looking for something because they know grandma's on it and they take it to a party or they try it themselves with a couple of friends out down by the river. That's the number one way kids get addicted. Okay. So if you could wave a magic wand, and we don't have to limit this to foster care or the opiate crisis, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? I'd make Purdue Pharma pay. I'd make them pay for everything they ever did and every lie they ever told and every rollout they ever completed knowing that it was addictive when they made it. I would make them clean up rural Maine and clean up rural Appalachia because they owe the people in those communities their very lives back. If I had a magic wand powerful enough, I would take every last red cent from every person who made money from Purdue Pharma and I would make them invest it in Appalachia. If we don't have a wand quite that powerful, <laughs> I would settle for residential programs within housing for children while parents are getting clean. Um, we can start in the middle of the crisis instead of assuming that the crisis could never have happened and create some, some places where people can get the help they need and get help when they get out of the residential treatment program, which will also take their kids with them. After that, they need a clean place to go live. They need a support system that will not dump them back in the middle of the community they're from where the drugs are flowing, but also that will not take them and drop them in the middle of a city 400 miles away where they don't know anyone. The temptations are the same. They're going to go back to drugs, either for proximity or loneliness. They need a one-on-one -on -one person to keep up with them about how they're doing and what they need. And they need to go to NA, every, Narcotics Anonymous, every single day 
for several months to, to make sure that they can find and maintain a place in their life of safety for them and their children. All right. So that's Wendy Welch with her magic wand. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for the magic wand. I hope it works. So that's Wendy Welch, author of Fall or Fly, the strangely hopeful story of foster care in Appalachia. You can find links to Wendy's book and related show information at vrha.org. The Rural Health Voice is a podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. VRHA works to improve health and health care for the 2.5 million people who call rural Virginia their home. The Rural Health Voice is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.